0: In our daily lives, everywhere around us, we see warnings. We live in a danger-filled world, and as a society, we do our best to keep people safe. One of the ways we do that is with warnings. You might be driving down the road, and you see a sign warning, road work ahead. You get handed a cup of coffee from the McDonald's drive through and it says on the side of the cup, warning, beverage is hot. We are warned to never click on a link in an email unless you know the sender because you could be downloading a virus onto your your computer. Warnings can be that final step, that last measure between us and harm. It may be physical harm, it may be financial harm. Have you ever regretted not heeding a warning? Sometimes the consequences are minor. Inconvenience, a little bit of pain, the loss of a few dollars. Sometimes the consequences are much more severe, a debilitating injury, financial ruin, maybe even death. Our Heavenly Father gives us lots of warnings. On the surface, some of these warnings may seem of minor consequence. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil didn't seem to Adam as too dire a warning but we all know and reap the result of his disobedience. We must remember that this world is a precursor, a reflection of what is to come, and that everything God warns us about has an eternal importance. The more dire the threat, the more dramatic and unavoidable the warning. I have entitled this morning's sermon, An Unheeded Warning. And before we read this morning's text, I want to give a little background to the book. The opening verse of Joel reads, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now, we know almost nothing about this prophet. But that does not matter too much in the end, because his intention, Joel's intention was to be a mouthpiece for God, not for himself. Joel is one of the twelve minor prophets in the Old Testament. The minor prophets are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. In the Hebrew Bible, the writings of these 12 are counted as a single book. In our Bible, they are 12 individual books. Joel's prophecy appears second in the canon's order of the 12 books. God knew Joel and sent his spirit to him with a message to share with his people. We don't know exactly when this book was written. No other Old Testament book mentions Joel. Most believe that Joel was an early, pre-exile prophet and suggest a date of around 830 B.C. Other pre-exile prophets include Obadiah, Jonah, Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, and Micah. Joel's frequent references to Judah and Jerusalem indicate that he lived and ministered in the southern kingdom. It has been observed that while the prophecy of Hosea reveals the heart of God, the prophecy of Joel reveals the hand of God. The course of history is determined by the hand of God and is being directed to a culminating event known as the Day of the Lord. Verse 15 reads, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Joel warns the nation Judah of a coming horrible and dreadful day. The day of the Lord is a phrase that appears often in the Old Testament, especially in the writings of the prophets. It speaks of times when the Lord intervenes in the affairs of men in an obvious and evidentiary manner. No Bible author writes more about the day of the Lord than does Joel. Joel uses the phrase, the day of the Lord, to refer both to events in his own day as well as to events in the future. The name Joel means, Jehovah is God, and therefore constitutes a short confession of faith, somewhat like the primary New Testament confession, Jesus is Lord. So with that background, let's read this morning's passage. Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethiel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, All you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament, like a virgin-wearing sackcloth. For the bridegroom of her youth, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate. Palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. It is, not, is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed. Because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned in all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up. The fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Because this is the word of our Lord, let's pray before we consider it. Heavenly Father, this is your word, not mine, and I pray that this morning, as we read and, and parse these passages, that truth will be spoken, that you will overcome my failings and my lack of understanding, and that what you want us to understand will be clearly imparted, and that as a result Our lives would change and the lives around us would be changed as well. We pray this in the glorious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. He begins, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. Sometimes, Scripture uses current events to foretell future events. Joel does this in his book. Here, however, Joel isn't announcing a coming judgment of the Lord. He describes their present state, devastated by successive swarms of locusts, first cutting or chewing, and then swarming, then hopping or crawling, and finally destroying locusts. Judah will experience an immediate and present time of famine and financial ruin because of these locusts. From this text, we can pull three powerful lessons. Lesson one. Fear God. The day of the Lord is a day to remember and repeatedly consider. This plague was so unusual that Joel says, Tell your children about it. The times were so remarkably difficult that parents would tell their children, I lived through the plagues of locusts. Each of us clearly remembers where we were and what we were doing on 9-11 when the towers came down. Myself, I was in Colorado preparing for an Elcon. You have your own memories. Yet this must have been a manifoldly more momentous experience because they are instructed to ensure all of the following generations know about it and understand its implications. The story of the Great Locust Plague and the message the prophet Joel attached to it is one that must be passed on to future generations. This terrible thing happened by the hand of God. Moses had instructed Israel to remember the works of their Lord to their children. They were to remember God's acts of mercy and deliverance, as well as God's acts of judgment and discipline. Why? Within our own lives, the reason becomes obvious. Every generation needs to be reminded that no matter what they have done, no matter who is against them, regardless of the past sin in their life, they can turn to God and be born again, made anew, become a new creation. However, every generation also needs to be reminded that God will not let his children get away with the continual, willful disobedience. How easy it is for us to take for granted the flowing mercy of our Heavenly Father, which he shows us. How tempting to assume it is limitless. However, God loves us too much to let us continue in sin. Romans chapter 11, verse 22 Reads, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. On them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. I look around me today, and I have to ask the question What has happened to fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is a holy respect and reverence for God. It is understanding, recognizing, and living in accordance with the knowledge that he is perfect and all-powerful without any trace of evil or sin. And yet we, fallen creatures that we be, are loved by him with a love beyond comprehension. The word of God tells us over and over that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A holy reverence and respect for God will keep us from sin and needless suffering in this life. Speaking of a healthy, holy fear of the Lord, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear Him, meaning the Lord, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The Lord chastens. He disciplines those He loves. How terrible was the judgment of locusts Joel speaks of? Well, the closest comparison I could come up with was in 1915, a devastating plague of locusts covered what is modern-day Israel and Syria. The first swarms came in March of that year, in clouds so thick they blocked out the sun. The female locusts immediately began to lay eggs, each depositing 100 at a time. Witnesses say that in one square yard, there were as many as 65,000 to 75,000 eggs. In a few weeks, they hatched, and the young locusts resembled large ants. They couldn't fly yet and got along by hopping. They marched along 400 to 600 feet per day, devouring every speck of vegetation along the way. After two more stages of molting, they became adults who could fly, and the devastation continued. Yet this plague is almost unknown today, a mere 105 years later. The plague Israel experienced was so much worse, they were instructed to never let a single generation forget. This brings us to lesson number two. The Lord knows how to get our attention. The day of the Lord is both humbling and horrible. This wasn't merely a plague of locusts. It really was four plagues compiled one upon another. Four types of locusts, each succeeded by another more terrible. Why had this come upon the land of Judah? God had warned his people of such a thing if they were unfaithful to him. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses stands before Israel to remind them of their special relationship to God. He tells them that while God will bless their obedience, he will also send various chastisements and curses upon them for their disobedience. Verses 14 to 15 read, And thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day to the right Hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. It goes on to list an invasion of locusts as one of the consequences of disobedience. Verse 38 says, Thou shalt carry much seed out into the field. And thou shalt gather but little in, for the locusts shall consume it. Verse 42 reads, All thy trees and fruit of thy land shall the locust consume. So far, then, we learned that God is fighting his people for some reason. We're not told why. We don't really need to know why. It seems Joel intended for us to learn more about God here than about ourselves. God has sent his army of locusts against Judah and threatened that the end is near. He is fighting against his people. But only is the destruction in his mind, is that all God's thinking of? No. We will see next week in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, it tells us more about this warrior God. It says, Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Just as Joel warned Judah in his own day, We are to return to the Lord our God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We see throughout the scriptures where repentance turns away the wrath of God. Yet, even though God has threatened destruction of his own people, he holds out the opportunity of repentance and salvation at the eleventh hour. He even pleads with them through his prophet Joel. If they will repent, he will repent. If they will rend their hearts, he will cease to rend their land. Verse 8 says, Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth. Joel tells Judah that they should look at their condition and mourn with all the emotion and passion of a young widow. Just as a young widow fears for her future, how will she be protected? How will she be provided for? So should Judah not receive this plague of locust stoically with false bravado. They are cautioned that their world as they know it is about to end. This describes a most tragic and bitter experience, the deepest sorrow because of the awareness of the loss. In this, Joel doesn't minimize the suffering at all. He isn't like the dentist who says, this may cause a bit of discomfort when he really means, this is really going to hurt and you will suffer. He deals with the suffering in a real way and says, let's turn back to the Lord. But more than merely warn, Joel provides leadership. He just doesn't tell them that they should repent. In verse 14, Joel also tells them how to do the work of repentance. He tells them to consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. First, they're to consecrate a fast. Make getting right with God so important That even eating isn't important. Repentance isn't rote, it's not perfunctory. The desire to repent should dominate every other desire. Second, call a sacred assembly. Call for God's people to come together and repent. Repentance is not just individual. If the nation sins, the nation should repent. Third, gather the elders. The leaders of the people should make a special point to be part of the work of repentance. The leaders of God's people hold a special and terrible weight. Just as the husband is held accountable for the state of his home, elders will be held accountable for the state of their churches. For those that desire leadership, weigh this carefully. It is a humbling and a fearful proposition. The elders are to gather to guide and lead the nation. Fourth, into the house of the Lord your God. Come to the place where you should meet together with God. There is power in corporate worship, and there is power in corporate repentance. And fifth, cry out to the Lord. Finally, simply cry out to God and trust that He will respond in mercy. He has promised He will. His promises are absolute and trustworthy. The aim of God in sending the locust hordes against his people is to secure their undivided allegiance. You shall know that I, Yahweh, am your God, and there is no one else. They had allowed their world to distract them from their Creator. So their Creator reduced that world, thus evoking a response of need. Evidently, the cause of the locust plague had been the people's half-hearted allegiance. They had allowed some of their affections to focus on things other than God. He was no longer their all-consuming love, so he fought against his own people. For few things are more dishonoring to God and dangerous for us than to love God in a half-hearted manner. Through Jesus, God gave his all for us. As the recipients of that blessing, we correspondingly owe all to him. In verse 16, it says that the locust plague produced severe conditions in Judah, which are described throughout chapter 1. The expression before our eyes emphasizes the people watched and watched helplessly as locusts destroyed their food sources. The land also had experienced a drought. Joel described the devastation and declared the famine was proof God was acting in judgment on them. We need to be reminded that while God is certainly merciful, long-suffering, and slow to wrath, He will not let His children continue to live in rebellion or in sinful ways continuously, or unchecked. If needs be, God can and will get our attention. The Lord can use everything from a loss to our health to weather to get our attention. I read somewhere that God puts us on our backs so that the only way we can look is up. Also, if God did not spare his people in the past, if he did not make an exception for his nation and the people of Israel, why would we think that we he would spare us? Is there a national lesson for us? I believe so. America is a great nation. God has favored and blessed America, but we are foolish to think that God will spare America in her disobedience. Back to Judah. This brings us to lesson three. Repent while there is time and opportunity. The day of the Lord is designed to lead us to repentance. It is human nature for people to have more of an interest in spiritual things after tragedy hits. The old adage, there are no atheists in foxholes, has a lot of truth to it. Whether at war with man or at war with God, it causes them to understand their own mortality and their need to restore their fellowship with God. The day of the Lord is a wake-up call. Verse 5 reads, Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Joel, he called for the drunkards to wake up and weep, because all the grapevines were destroyed. The drunkard waking up from his stupor is a picture of Israel waking up to her own sinful condition. Sin lulls us to sleep. It dulls our senses. Its addiction is no different from wine. Just as the old-school method to awaken a drunk was to slap him in the face and toss him in a cold shower, this visitation was a slap in the face and a cold shower to awake Judah. Paul rebukes the church at Corinth because they were not grieving over sin in their midst. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2 says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Later in 2 Corinthians chapter seven, verses nine to 10, we read, "As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The day of the Lord is a call to repentance. Verse 13 reads, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Sackcloth was the attire of repentance. Sackcloth was mostly of, most often made of a coarse black goat's hair. It was customarily worn by mourners as a sign of deep repentance and of humility. Ashes were often included as a further symbol of personal abhorrence and humiliation. Yet repentance speaks of so much more than a change of clothing. Sackcloth was merely an outward representation of what was supposed to be an inward change of direction. It results in action. In verse 14, Joel gives direction to the nation. Notice his instruction to them. Gather the elders into the house of the Lord and cry out to God. Verse 14 concludes, Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. Will cry out what? Cry, Lord, turn away your wrath. We get the message and we are changing our ways. We need to remember the message of Joel and learn the lesson of the locusts. In Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, Jesus was confronted with a problem of a disaster that killed 18 people. Instead of acting as if it were just an accident of blind fate, Jesus used it as a wake up call for repentance. Jesus showed that why did this disaster happen to them is the wrong question. The right question is, am I ready to face such a disaster in this fallen world? In Joel's day, the people of Judah did not take seriously God's attitude towards sin. They thought they were safe from judgment because they were Abraham's descendants. God called Joel to prophesy to the people of Judah to warn them of God's judgment and to urge them to repent and return to God. God made clear to Joel that in addition to the locust plague, Judah would soon experience an invasion from an enemy army. God would send that army against his people just as he had sent the locust plague. We will see in chapter 2 that the invasion would also be a judgment on Judah's sin. However, God is not just a God of wrath and punishment. He is also a God of grace, mercy, and love. Therefore, God offered Judah an opportunity to escape judgment. He extended an urgent call to repent and turn to him. If the people repented, he would have mercy on them and deliver them from further judgment. Whereas God's judgment on Judah was harsh, God's mercy to the people, which is based on their repentance, would include firm assurance of their restoration to God's presence, his protection, and his provision. God also would pour his Holy Spirit on all of them, The presence of the Holy Spirit would be a sign of God's favor on them and of their continued relationship with him. Later on, in a few weeks, in chapter 3, we will discover that God also would judge Judah's enemies. Because he is sovereign over all people and all nations, he would bring every nation to judgment for all the wrong they had done, especially all they had done against his people. Many individuals struggle with the concept of a wrathful God. They can't conflate the concept of grace and judgment residing simultaneously within God. His conflict is exemplified in the book of Joel. Some would say that this is why they only give credence to the New Testament. That Somehow, Jesus is different from God. Jesus is love and grace. God is wrath and judgment. This is actually false teaching. God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, a triune God. The Trinity is three residing as one, one God in three distinct persons. Are the book of Joel and the New Testament in conflict with one another as to the nature of God? Does this indicate a conflict in the nature of God himself? Well, absolutely not. In this book, we see the judgment of God discussed, yet we know that all of Scripture points to Jesus. Get Jesus, everybody says. He's about love and forgiveness. Does this mean, then, that the wrath of God is an Old Testament attribute and not a New Testament trait? Not at all. We need to look at the completeness of God, including the complete nature of His Son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus came the first time, as a babe, it was certainly an expression of love and grace that God offered. The Scripture also makes it clear that when Jesus comes again, He's going to come in judgment, full of wrath, None can stand against him. His glory and might will come crashing down like a tsunami wave on a fallen world. I'm reminded of Psalm 22, verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Yet in the midst of this terrible image, we see both wrath and grace. Wrath and judgment is coming, but only for those who fail to accept the grace that is offered. King Jesus is coming as a conqueror. That conqueror he is already. He conquered death. He has defeated sin. And if you claim him your king, your Lord, your Savior, death and sin have already been conquered for you. That is, is the nature of God. Mercy and grace flowing, but to a point. For Israel in Joel's time, that point had been reached and judgment was to ensue on the nation. For all of mankind, grace and mercy continues to flow, but only to a point. The time is coming when this judgment will rain down from heaven with a terrible certainty. Do you know when that time will be? No one does, not even Jesus himself, the Bible tells us. Only the Father knows. If you have that uncertainty in you, don't blindly keep plodding forward in your sinful ways as Israel did. Judgment awaits each person who follows their own pleasures and rejects Christ. Repentance is what Joel called Israel to, and all of Scripture calls you to repentance today. The day of the Lord is coming. Are you ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise your name. We are so grateful that your love and mercy does flow. And Father, we are also grateful for the, grateful for the warning we have seen here this morning. For there isn't a day that goes by that sin doesn't raise its head in our lives. Hardly a moment. Father, for any of those who have heard this message that are uncertain about their future, maybe they've never really claimed Jesus as their Lord. Maybe they've gone to church but not taken that step to submit to him as their Savior. Father, I pray that He will reach out to me, to someone else here at church, and ask, what is it I do? How do I have that assurance? For God, we recognize the day is coming. We don't know when, but it is most assuredly coming, when there will be no more chances, no more grace. The decision made. Your son arriving as a king to rule this earth. For those of us that have made that commitment, that have declared Jesus our Lord and Savior, Father, we actually long for that day when the world is not ruled by evil and Satan, but by your Son. In the meanwhile, God, I ask that we would be effective in sharing the gospel message to others so that when that day arrives, they too can rise up with us to worship your Son, To be in your throne room and lay down before you, praising your name. We pray these things in the glorious name of your Son, our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.